Hey everybody, welcome to Outspoken. This is episode 47. I'm your host, Justin White, and my guest this week is my friend Amy Carl. Um, she is someone I met through a dear friend who, um, well, he, my friend moved from California to Detroit and met Amy and her husband, Ben, who I've also talked to, episode 12. Um, and they moved from Detroit to California years later, and I met them here. And so Amy and I have known each other for a handful of years, but we don't get to hang out all that much. We both have kids different ages. My kid has babysat her kid a couple times. And we've been to their house for lovely parties and such. Um, but uh, yeah, every time Amy and I talk, it's nice. She's got a lot to say. She's got a lot going on, as you will hear. And um, yeah, I guess I'd rather have her tell it than me, because I'm boring AF. Um, I just got to get some of this water off this ping pong table, and then we'll talk to Amy. Um, you grew up in, in Endicott, is that what it's I called? grew up in Endicott, New York. Okay. And until what age? Well, um, I feel like until after college. I went to college at Alfred University and Cornell University, which was just kind of an extension of the upstate. Okay. Well, Cornell's in Ithaca, right? Cornell's in Ithaca. And where's yeah. is, where is Alfred? Alfred is in Alfred, New York. It's okay. really small. It's near Corning. What kind of school is it? It's an art school. It's uh, It competes, I think, with a Danish school for the number one spot for ceramic art and ceramic engineering. Is that what you went the world. for specifically? I went for ceramic. I went for art. I went for art. Did and, you know you were going to do ceramics when you arrived? Well, or? I went on a ceramic scholarship. Oh, cool. And that's still apparent in my work today with the form and function. But I only took one semester of ceramic art, and I didn't use my thumbs. And so I was taking wheel throwing, and that was very interesting. And what do you mean? A, Why didn't you use your thumbs? Well, I decided I had uh, lost my mother to cancer, and okay. she was really healthy in so many ways. But she died when she was 46 years old. Wow. And on her deathbed, she said, you know, don't do this to yourself, as in don't work yourself so hard, because that was really her addiction. She was a uh, workaholic, and I have some of those traits. And a number of people in my family have those traits. And it's really compounded because with other addictions, um, you don't reap so many rewards as you do when you're a workaholic. Yeah. Your health suffers, your family suffers. Like so a that's lot of really what suffer. happened to her? That's, a, that's what that's, she attributes? That's really what we, um, what we think. Um, wow. She had ovarian cancer. Wow. And she passed away when she was 46. So, Which would have made you a teenager, right? Yeah, and, yep. Yeah. Wow. That's really super hard to lose your mom at that time or any time. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So go back to not using your thumbs or, I mean, so I after know she passed that... away, I, I totally just threw myself into my work. Mm -hmm. um, as you Even know, though not... she had just warned you? To, yeah. Like, even though she this. just warned me, but it wasn't a conscious thing. Yeah. It okay. was, you know, it's that addiction to yeah. workaholism and like not facing my emotions and mm. I was young I was 
I was 19 years old. And if I could have brought a lot of this stuff to awareness, even now, I would choose to do that. But that's not how it always works. So you would choose to do what I would choose to bring like my emotions to my awareness okay. instead of say overwork or right. choose to do these mm. other behaviors that don't really, but you didn't know, up. but I, you didn't have I those tools. I yet. didn't, yeah, I wasn't aware of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did re- see that I was working way too much and I wasn't being healthy and I tried different ways to convince myself to slow down or to work less, but nothing really worked. So I decided that if I didn't use my thumbs that, would slow me down and I didn't think of it as like art at the time you know I was just thinking of it as a way to try to slow myself down but it really was an interesting practice that a lot of people called like one of my best performance art pieces so for a period of a year I didn't use my thumb I wore these little slings over my wrist I did talk to a doctor about it Mm -hmm. and I take them off at night and kind of do some thumb exercises but Everything was hard. So like, you didn't use it for any, you didn't use them for no, anything? No, like brushing my hair, sewing. Wow. Um, sewing. Yeah. Anything sure. I had to learn how to do without my thumbs. Damn. And it was a really interesting time. And I had the liberty of not having to use my thumbs. Like I had the space in my life. Yeah. Were you, were you in a relationship or not at the time? I was. You were? Yeah, I was. And um, that was okay? I, and to... I was in college. Yeah, it was fine. Wow. It was fun. And there's still a lot you could do without your thumbs. Well, for sure. Yeah. But I mean, just in terms of the, another person tolerating that sort of project or whatever, you know, like however you Actually, however, I got a lot of support. For you did? It. Yeah. That's yeah. Great. And I was at Alfred. I was at a small art school. So I didn't I got much more um, support and curiosity and interest than mm. I did like, oh, hey, you're weird. Yeah. Um, Even from your ceramics teachers? They, they yeah. were okay with you not using your thumbs? Yeah. So um, Linda Sikora was my wheel throwing teacher, and she's a pretty well-known ceramic artist and very traditional. And and I didn't know how she would take it, but she was really awesome and got kind of excited about it too. So like experimenting with throwing with your elbows. And mm-hmm. I felt not so judged on the actual product of, what can I throw mm-hmm. with my hands as as much as I was um, evaluated on how far can I push this and how creative could I get within nice. those limitations? Yeah. And you have any of the work still from that period? I don't uh, think so, but I do have the, um, the slings, the thumb slings. Oh, yeah? Yeah. yeah. Cool. I might have a few ceramic pieces here and there. I'm just curious to know like how... You know, if you're trying to make a bowl and you don't use your thumbs, <laughs> what do you use? You did you use elbows you can to use, press. You can use mouth? elbows. Use you can nose? use tools. No, I never use my nose, no. but my nose does have a good shape for. <laughs> get some little detailing with the, yeah. with the, the grooves. Um, wow! And then, so did you set out? You said it was going to be a year, and mm-hmm. then and you stuck to it. And mm-hmm. then at the end of the year, you took off your slings. And yeah, and then I had to had relearn to do party. a lot of other things again. Yeah, what was that like? It was um it was a different awareness. It was, you know, coming to a different awareness of understanding. I would say it's more like a Buddhist practice. And that was different much different than anything I was raised with. Mm. I was raised Catholic. Okay. And, Did you um, rebel against that in your youth or Oh totally. Or, yeah. yeah. It was more of, I didn't like people telling me what to do. Mm-hmm. And I felt like the church, 
didn't give me much of an option to explore what it meant to be a good person. They just told you you had to do X, Y, and Z. Right. And I wasn't into it, you yeah. know? And, um, and it was an institution and you go and you follow certain rules and you do certain stuff. And, you know, going to church was boring. Looking at a dead guy hanging, bleeding yeah. in front of, in front of me really wasn't a good model. Like it wasn't until I was much older and kind of opened my heart to understand that this was my cultural heritage. Did I start to understand all these different aspects of like, Jesus was a person that was a teacher. He mm -hmm. wasn't just like a martyr that suffered and died. Like where it was drilled into my head when, right. when I was young. And it was your fault too. Yeah. That, that he oh, did it's that. all, it's all our fault all yeah. the time. Yeah. <laughs> and you're, you're going to hell, whatever you do. Yeah. No matter what. Yeah. You still I don't, have to I don't feel like my parents really put, push that on me too much, but it was the, um, but it was the culture and it was the religion. Mm -hmm. So, but there is a part of me being raised in the um, Italian American environment that it was just part of our cultural heritage too. And I came to find a lot of peace with that uh -huh. of, you know, celebrating Christmases together and like the whole family coming together for these holidays and having all the food and the traditions and um, also doing things like when people pass away, making food for them and going to their houses, bringing, Did bringing them the food, being, like being oh yeah, the big wake overnight and the whole, the whole day, the whole well, it wasn't necessarily overnight, but it was definitely many days, you know, seeing, yeah, okay. generally seeing the body. And, um, and there's something really important to me um, throughout my life and my work about this material and spiritual coming together. And, um, and that's something that is definitely apparent in, in the cultural heritage and the religion I was raised in mm -hmm. as well. Also, you know, when I was young, I used to go with my grandma, I, I, my grandmother, my parents worked, so I stayed with my grandmother and I really cherished that time we had together. She taught me a lot of stuff. She was very creative and sewed all the time. And, um, she was a really strong woman. Um, at a time she was, you know, a single mom when it, what, there wasn't a lot of single mothers and it definitely wasn't accepted or popular. So I still admire her so much to this day, but you know, I was, we had a big age difference. Yeah. She was in her seventies when I was young. And so we would go visit her friends in the hospital mm -hmm. when they were sick. And when they died, we'd go to their wakes and we'd, I'd see the body there. And it actually, I think prepared me a lot for other loved ones that, um, you know, got sick and died throughout mm -hmm. life. Cause some people don't, see that yeah until, until the much, very first one yeah or they're much older and they just freak out right yeah it's kind of too much if you yeah. haven't had any prep um that's interesting do you and at the time it didn't have any sort of morbidity or anything right it was like when you're a kid you just kind of go with what is happening or i don't remember a time of ever feeling scared mm -hmm. or upset like when i saw my uncle died a few years ago now and to see some of my cousins that were older, you know, in their young teens that haven't seen somebody dead before to see like their grandfather yeah, and how difficult it was for them. Of course it was difficult for all of us cause we loved him, but yeah. to see that difficulty of also remembering someone that way yeah, of remembering their corporealness, like remembering their body deteriorating or remembering them, dead is because it's uh, such a shock mm -hmm. is difficult for sure 
So you say you bring that into your work now, the, the sort of bridge between the corporeal and the spiritual, right? Mm-hmm. And how, how does that, I mean, we'll have to talk about your work a bit to, to get to where, how that meets, where those meet, right? Do you mind doing that? Yeah, you sure. talk about what, what you're doing these days, art-wise yeah. and life-wise? Yeah, so I am an artist. I feel like artwork is the language through which I communicate best. Like I can tell a story through a piece of work or just story isn't even the right words. Like convey all these emotions, the past, the future, um, the present, all in one piece. And in an instant, somebody can just look at that and feel it. Mm. So I feel like I can communicate much better through the language of art than any other way that I can communicate. But I've been working on also verbally (laughs) sharing too Uh and articulating. So the work that I create, I study what it means to be human and what it means to be alive. And with that, you know, we have to study notions of life and death, material and spiritual, mind, body, And it's, uh, you know, it's studying both the human condition and like the biological, the scientific. It's the whole realm of what does it mean to be alive? What Mm. does it mean to be human? And I specifically also focus on, too, this interesting time that we're at in humanity of humans and technology merging. We look at how much we use our phones in a day or our computers. We really see that. But there's all these other advancements, too, that help us to live and thrive, like modern medicine and surgeries as well. Mm-hmm. And so, can, I mean, can you describe a little bit about your the specifics of your work? So that just to the yeah. listener, I mean, I've, I've seen. Yeah, some we'll see. A lot of we'll see how I how well I do without having something in front of me. So I leverage um, exponential technologies as often the tools that I use. Um, So I work through different tools like 3D printing, uh, regenerative medicine, biotechnology, and I make sculptural, mostly sculptural works with that. But the works that I am making, um, they have to function as a piece of artwork at the end of the day. So no matter what tools or what complexity goes into it, they have to be able to at the end of the day, the artwork has to take over and be able to capture someone's emotion when they look at it. Mm. So when I'm working through my art, I'm also often thinking about um, medical technologies. I use a lot of technologies that are used in medical futuring. So artificial intelligence or, you know, one of my works I'm really known for, Regenerative Reliquary, is a piece that is 3D printed scaffolds for stem cell culture into bone installed in a bioreactor. Well, while I'm making this piece, I'm working through all these technologies that are really hard to work with. And we had to make a lot of advancements to make that piece um, scientifically, technologically. But I'm thinking about people in my life that like my friend Lisa, who I grew up with, who needed a lung transplant and how amazing it would be if, you know, we could. 3d print an organ for her and use her own genetic material or the kids that i volunteer with um creating 3d printed um pieces for upper limb differences Mm. or like my uncle my great uncle dick who lost his leg in world war ii and still bleeds every day like they haven't been able to make a prosthesis for him and he's has some of the best care Mm. Um, but thinking about these people in my life that have real needs and like how could we medically heal them so even though that would be, you know, an ultimate goal is that in some way some of the the 
tools that I use or work that I do in the process of making my art could actually be used in a medical sense would be an amazing goal. At the end of the day, it's still that I communicate all of these stories through mm -hmm. art. So whatever happens in the process of if advancements are made or not, or if, um, if the technology and the science can be used or not, I think it still functions to inspire this hope and this thinking of um, enhancing humanity for the better. Because a lot of these technologies I'm using, we can see are on a spectrum where, you know, you can use it for a, towards a total like doomsday scenario, which is really easy to picture because mm -hmm. we see that in the movies all the time or like an enlightenment, you know, and I don't. I think it's more neutral than that. I think it's, you know, how we choose to use the technology. And, um, and for me, it's really important that we're cognizant of how we're using it and who thinking about who do we want to become as individuals and as a species and use our tools to help us get there. So in my case, I use it to make art and explore what it means to be human and hopefully make some kind of contribution to humanity in the process. And so when you, when you're asking the question to yourself, like what it means to be human, what sort of feedback are you aiming to get or what feedback have you gotten from all these? Because you've done things where you're like attaching electrode, you know, or, or it's like sensors to your body to machines that can read your, I mean, I, I don't, you could describe it better than I can, but what what is it exactly that you want to hear and find out about being human or, or how would that what do you hope to find and how would you use it to better yourself if that is if that's the goal I think um, the reason I feel so driven to create art and communicate this is because I want to share that some of these experiences that we have we're not alone mm. <laughs> that we all have suffering uh, we all experience pain and loss and have this hardship of the human condition. But there's also opportunity for hope and joy and connection, mm -hmm. too. So I'm, I think I'm exploring that. Like, I, I don't know if I'm trying to get a result, but I really feel a need to try to communicate it mm -hmm. and share that with others.
I think a lot of these um, new advancements we're making, um, a lot of people are going into it with the best intentions. But then, you know, it starts to get into some gray areas because we have, you know, gene therapy in that too. So we can also make people resistant to future diseases or, you know, like there's some resistance even to HIV and certain like lymphomas. There was recently some um, bone marrow transplants that were done that have cured people now from like lymphoma and HIV. I think there was two or three done recently. Um, so we're looking at, you know, gene therapy. We're thinking about if we can grow organs and replacement parts. So first that I would imagine that would be used for people who need it because they're sick. But then we start to get to this place of, okay, now you're old. Yeah. So let's now start replacing your parts because you're old. And this is exciting too, because modern medicine has done a really great job of keeping us alive to a full human lifespan. But we don't really have any meds that can make us live longer than a human lifespan. Like mm-hmm. a human lifespan has been, you know, 70 to 90 years for a really long time. Not everybody lived to that. Um, but and the more medicine we have, the more we can stay healthy. But it has been steadily increasing. I mean, just in our lifetime, I've watched the, the, the average age go mm-hmm. up a decade. And from the, the human life, mm-hmm. I mean, just in two generations or whatever, I've seen... But like the average that a human could live to, like even yeah. in biblical times, there's you're people that lived like, to, I'm talking about you like, you want to go like 200 years. Yeah, 200 years, 300 years. Like okay. these are is the kinds of technologies. Personally? Well, this is where the really interesting questions arise, mm-hmm. right? This is when it starts to transfer over from, you know, being just like healing and enhancing our life experience to then what, you know, if, yeah. if there is a really prolonged life or if there is no death and What's the meaning of life? Um, Is this something that we want to do? Is this really valuable? Are we going to be um, carrying on, you know, the generations in an appropriate way? Would it be better for some people to live, not some people to live? How do we make those choices? Well, the choice would be made because only rich people would be able to do it. In America. And only, yeah, it would only be the wealthy and, and the privileged and... Well, you say that, though, about America, but then there's other cultures like in China where, you know, gene therapy as a culture, they would probably want to implement because, you know, as a government imposed implementing because they want to have a race that is smarter and stronger and healthier and (laughs) resistant to all the pollution that they put into the air, you know, and that's something that then you have a different issues. Then it's not about who can afford it or not. That Then it's about a right to your own body. And when you're making these changes, this is irreversible. When you right. start messing up your genetic code, you can't undo that. You yeah. can't change that. So we have to really be cognizant of what is smart to do. And then, you know, you have other cultures like Germany who would I would assume would be much more sensitive and kind of some of the last on the list to make those changes because of things that have happened in their past with, um, you know, cleansing of certain mm-hmm. types. Yeah. We know about that. Yeah. yeah. So where do you stand personally on it? What would you what do you think about prolonging life beyond the, the normal lifespan? Not to not in the sake mm-hmm. of healing or, you know, I, I don't really know yet. I, um, where I firmly stand is that we need to really consciously be aware of this and look at what are the ramifications of that and not just go into it blindly. So that's like where my really strong belief is. But what about on just like take all pragmatism mm-hmm. aside, like you personally, if somebody said, do you want to live to be 200? 
I really don't know. You know, would my family also be able to stay alive that long? Would my friends, would my loved ones? Then I think I would. But if it was just me, I don't know. Yeah. Do you, how do you feel about the, the general model as it stands now just to prolong, in this country at least, and it seems like others are following, to prolong life at all costs? Use any technology to keep someone alive even if their quality of life is negligible. Because that's well, the thing is, I get. This is where it gets really difficult, right? To, yeah. um, to, to have a quality of life is really important. You know, I talk about how my mom passed away when she was 46. That was really young. She lived such a full life mm. in those 46 years. And she, you know, touched more people and did more things and more good than some people do in their whole life. So, But she would have liked to keep living, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so she fought not, to live, yeah. too. You know, and all of us would have liked for her to live, too. And, um, and that was it you know all costs it wasn't just financial it was like what is the best care we can get for her what are the best clinical trials what's the best doctors what are the best meds like how could we provide for her emotionally too you know um but she was with it until you know she was talking chemistry with her colleagues until a few days before she passed away Mm -hmm. so she, and she was, you know, emotionally like really a strong and stable person for my father and I, even when she was the one that was dying. Um, mm. So this was really amazing. But there's a lot of people that don't have that experience, even when their body is deteriorating. Um, they don't have a positive experience. They don't want to live. And those become really important questions, like the right to life, the right to death mm-hmm. are really important questions especially if we're going to be prolonging life and we do have you know population issues for example yeah which this is a humanitarian issue why would we force somebody to stay alive well that's the thing i'm always asking like there there are plenty of people who don't want to be here anymore Mm -hmm. and their bodies are falling apart and they're ready to check out but their their family isn't ready for them so they keep them alive. They keep them in a hospital where they don't want to be hooked up to machines all the time. You know, there's no quality of life left. Or it's or it's no comparison to the life they had. Mm. I I mean, it seems to me the majority of people in that situation would rather just go home and die than be mm-hmm. stuck there indefinitely just to see like, okay, can we drag another three months out of this? I and, think it's a really personal. Totally, you know, but really but the problem question. is that they're it's really hard. But they're a state. There's state, there are laws about it. There are things, you know, they're legal. You, mm-hmm. you, they're, you don't have the right to take your own life. Mm-hmm. It's illegal, it's, which to me is absurd. I mean, I think it's truly absurd that there's a law about suicide. <laughs> That's my p- opinion. I'm not for it. I'm not saying suicide's great. I've, you know, it's awful. It's terrible to experience, it, you know, as the bereaved. But I don't think it's anyone else's business other than that person ultimately i mean i think it is the anyone they leave behind of course is going to be impacted and that is something that i'm sure they've considered and i'm sure anyone who goes that far with it has considered everything because what you know if that's your last if that's the last out that you see mm-hmm. then it must be it must actually be that bad you know i think i don't know or but, you know you say bad but it might not <clears> be bad might not be the right word maybe it's not but but it but 
that's the decision that you want to make and it's your life, I don't mm-hmm. see why that's anyone else's decision. It should only be yours. It certainly shouldn't be the mm-hmm. government's. I mean, I don't, <laughs> no, I don't, you no. know, and I don't, that's for life or death. Right. You know, that's the, that's what's really, or in, in my opinion, for anything that we do to our bodies, but we don't have that control over our bodies. Well, I know. And so when I, that's mm-hmm. why I'm like, a lot of what you're saying mm-hmm. makes sense to me. And I agree that we should be questioning all of those things. But ultimately, with a lot of that stuff, it's not going to be the citizenry who are making the decisions about it. And it may not even be the, the scientists mm-hmm. or the inventors or whoever comes up with the stuff. It might be whoever just decides it's theirs and says, well, we're using it for this. Mm-hmm. You know, we want we, you know, we we want an army with... of people who are impervious to disease and will live 300 years and they're super strength, mm-hmm. you know, that's what. And then not just um, genetic editing, but when we start to look at, you know, AI and then implants like mm-hmm. neural nets, you know, when I when I talk about doing biofeedback work and some of the that, you know, neural headsets that I'm wearing, those are really simplified devices, but we can look at on the other end of the spectrum implants that can actually affect our bodies and our beings, you know, to put like neural nets in our brains. And um, some of this research and some of this work is already there. So there are we, people doing that. We could with humans, neural neural nets. Uh, there's there's some companies that are researching it. Really? But yeah. But um, who are the guinea pigs? Well, I the, all that I know of um, that's being done right now are for people that are like quadriplegic paraplegic okay. people that have lost you know sensation um, so it's a way to part of their read. body parts it's a way to stimulate other parts of their body so there's different implants that you know go in the brain or the spinal column and they they help people they yeah, help yeah. people to move it's basically like building bridges mm-hmm. in the nervous system to reconnect but when we start talking about you know there's other implants too that like when a woman is going into labor will page her doctor will page what? her like OBGYN and let them know there's an implant there's implants and you know you think about implants for you know pacemakers well all these things the more connected we are the more they could be hacked and this is a really interesting scenario of you know what choices do we want to make what how far do we want to go with this and do we have to buy the model that's out there or could we buy like this old analog device like my old sandine image processor that works really great and can't be hacked you know like it, well, there, there's different there's different things but this does is, anybody even stop at just the word implant like do, doesn't i mean do, wouldn't you think more people more humans would just pause there Oh, wait, you're talking about cutting me open and sticking something inside and then closing it up and leaving that thing in there? You'd think well, more people okay. would balk at that What about idea. vaccines? You well, know, vaccines are also implanting, like, different genetic information. I know. I, I have the same, mm-hmm. you know, same questions about that. But it's, uh, you know, this is a much more obvious and much more universally sort of unorthodox practice, you know? To be putting, to be sticking things under your, like into your body to leave there. The first, I remember hearing the very first one I heard of was a, a cell phone that would go be in your tooth. You would just have a Bluetooth in your tooth. Yeah. Before Bluetooth even <laughs> existed, there was talk of a, like a wireless transmitter that would just be in your tooth and that would be your phone. That would be how you just like click on your tooth or whatever to, to answer. That to me is, I mean, I, I'm a sci fi not i love that kind of shit but i would never ever ever consider doing it myself personally just because it hasn't it well holds that's really no... interesting too of like how much is that what you really want to tune into 
Is that what you want to put your attention on? Like, I like to be able to turn off my phone. Yeah. You know, and hang it up. But um, if it's always there. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what I mean. Like, isn't that... To me, it's there's a certain... Something's a little off if you're willing to do that. I mean, it goes beyond a tattoo or a piercing or any of that. And the people already have judgments about that sort of, you know, bodily mutilation, so to speak. But when you're talking... I mean, I saw something where people were putting just the little uh, scanner thing that would open the door to their apartment building. They had it implanted into their wrist just so that they wouldn't have to carry a little card or a key or something. Never you know? lose your keys. Right. To me, that's a sickness. That's like, it's a, it's like that person might see it as like this, oh, it's so cool. I'm like a cyborg, you know? Mm-hmm. To me, it's like a, that's like a mental illness of sorts. I don't think it's a mental illness. Um, I think it's a choice. What I get, concerned about is as we continue to have more options to modify our body I'm actually concerned that we're going to become more alike (laughs) because we have a limited we have limited options actually it might seem like we have a lot of options to change and become different but here let me put it this way all of us use computers now you know I work with a lot of artists I work with a lot of doctors these are people who used to have such a diverse range of intelligences Doctors always complain to me that, you know, almost all the doctors that I see now don't have enough time to touch people. Mm-hmm. The older doctors, they talk about how their practice used to be much more about touching people and feeling what was going on inside of them. And now a lot of them, when they work for large practices or these big hospitals um, that are on the cutting edge of advancements and, you know, doing really well as far as the care and treatment but they can only see patients for like 10 minutes and about one issue. And they're sitting and they're filling out their computer, even if they have an assistant. So, you know, and then I have a sculptor friends who, you know, are amazing sculptors and they're not necessarily thinking about stuff, but then they go into industrial design and they're now, you know, forced into using computers and designing in the computer. So now all of a sudden, all these people are becoming homogenized behind a screen mm-hmm. and our talents and things that all these other intelligences that we develop through our practices are disappearing. So mm-hmm. we're all becoming alike behind the use of screens. Likewise, um, as we modify in our bodies, if we choose to do implants or modifications, I'm concerned that we will become homogenized by the options that we have. So if we all have neural implants, we're all going to start moving in the same way, thinking the same thoughts. You know, we're right. so what? many people now are using mm-hmm. texting. So now a whole group of people is training themselves to value short bursts of information and their brains are actually changing. There's been scientific studies done that are showing that. Right. So, you know, are we being cognizant of how we're changing ourselves? Is that trade off worth it? We're not being Um, cognizant. I mean, I can tell you right now we're not, I mean, it's pretty obvious. We're just rushing headlong into this shit with no idea of what it's going to do. And we're get, we are being, we are our own Guinea pigs. We get Mm -hmm. to check in in a, 50 years or 100 years and see what how we did
cherish them and take the best possible care of them their entire lives and other people abuse the shit out of them and but but both of those are legitimate expressions of a life in the world mm. you know and living through the body yeah you're just experiencing yeah. it in your way through your particular vessel and everybody's got a different one and everybody's got a different little package inside that you know it's pretty cool it's pretty insane to think about but i don't when you're saying your fear of like this homogenization, I totally get that with, I, I agree that that's happening just with the sort of our focus, like our the, the entertainment that we're steered toward and the, the stuff we're allowed to listen to on the radio. You know, and the work that we do. And, yeah, the type yeah. of jobs that are made available mm-hmm. and, and what you're encouraged to aim for in your life, like all that stuff. Um, it is, yeah, it is seem, it seems to be, well, I remember being a kid and having everybody like parents and teachers, you got to be well-rounded. You got to, you know, you got to really learn a lot about everything and get, you know, learn some skills. And then it, at one point it shifters, like you got to, you got to focus. You really got to know, you know, you got to be really good at one thing. You got to specialize. I feel like I struggle with both of those I don't all think, the time. I don't right? think either one is right. I think it's, I think that if you are the type of person who does well focusing on one thing, then do that thing, you know? And if you're the type, if you're a jack of all trades or a multitasker and you like that sort of problem solving, then do that. The problem is that we have this model that doesn't allow for those different types of learning or the different emotional intelligences or any of it. It just says like, here, get in the factory and do your damn job, Mm -hmm. you know? And the school is the first factory and then the job is the other factory. Mm -hmm. And so... Yeah, I would program to be machines. So that's the thing. Like we're like the the humanity is already being taken out of us. And now we're being taught that we should try to be more. I don't feel that as an artist. (laughs) No. Well, I don't either. I don't feel it personally, but I feel as a society. I I, I feel I mean, I feel it. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. You you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like this, the struggle to be human. Yeah. Yeah. Is constantly there because the society, the human society we've created does not uh it doesn't cater to to people to everybody mm-hmm. it barely caters to anybody you know and, and it's being run by a bunch of assholes who, who don't care care about anyone so that's i don't know i'm curious to see what like what sort of paradigm shift will happen when technologies are not only in the hands of the police state and the, and the mm-hmm. powers that be, you know, when they're, when something gets to a point where it's equalized a little bit, if that is a technological advancement or whatever it is, because right now we're at the mercy, you know, the masses are at the mercy of the, of the, whatever the, mm-hmm. the bosses. But isn't this how it's always been too? Yeah. But I mean, there was this really great show on the industrial revolution at the D young. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I remember reading the show book about it. And I lived in Detroit for a decade. And, you know, we have the really famous Diego Rivera painting there of all the factory workers. And kind of the whole cycle of life is actually wrapped into that in the universe. Yep, that painting is You know, awesome. it's amazing. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's been the backdrop for, like, so many talks and different events in my life in Detroit. And so that is always what comes to mind. 
But, you know, when you read these texts from that era and you see these paintings, it's the same relationship of the stuff that we're talking about now about, you know, the idea that we have created these technologies to empower us, but then we become enslaved by them. Right. I grew up in the home of IBM. Endicott was the home of IBM. Oh, really? And yeah, and when I was a kid, we used to go to these different... um, you know, class field trips, like somebody's dad who worked at IBM, always right. the dads, right? Yep. And we would see these computers that were the size of rooms, mm-hmm. you know, they were humongous. And we were told these stories that when we were adults, when we were the age that we are now, computers would be able to solve the world's problems. Mm-hmm. They would be able to do these like great computations and figure out how to get food to everyone. And, you know, um, and we would be able to live lives of leisure because the computers would be doing like all this work for us, like right. taxes and all these things that like all Everything these people you don't had to do jobs. Do. Yeah. Um, and then we would be able to pursue the arts and, um, and really just enjoy life. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, we got that right, right? We have computers that can do all this stuff now. We have technology that can do this, but that's not how we're, we're using, using it. Instead, it we're like diving into this mania of trying to keep up with pacing ourselves at this inhumane rate instead of having a proper relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, or I shouldn't, I don't even know what proper is, but instead of having a carefully crafted and considerate relationship with how we're going to use these tools to empower us. We're just like going into this mania of trying to keep up with it. And it's a losing battle. (laughs) Yeah, obviously it's, we're, we're not winning if there's, you know, I don't know what there is to be won, but I know there's a lot at (laughs) stake. there's a full circle you know it's not necessarily life and then we just die um without this death we don't have the same concept of life and um and a a lot of us if we realize it are not are living around death so for example i was born with a life-threatening birth defect i was missing skin on the top of my head and and a lot of cases of children that have this die from it because they have larger regions and if you don't have this vital organ you're susceptible to all kinds of diseases and um and so i had many experimental surgeries until one worked when i was a teenager so i grew up with this issue and i was also always trying to hide it too Mm. because it was different than the other kids so you know medically like physically it was threatening to me um And I was also like very conscientious of it. I didn't want to be seen as like bald or have exposed, you know, exposed flesh. Um, I was missing hair. And there, but there was another issue too of like 
getting in touch with the human condition because of this, like not to have to understand that my body had limitations, that I couldn't do everything that I wanted to do, that um, to have issues with freedom and constraint. So, you know, freedom to me is one of my big, it is my biggest value. Like even above love is freedom is my biggest value. So to have this physical constraint and try to question like, how do we have freedom within constraint? This to me is actually the question of life too. How do we have, you know, this abundant and joyful life within this constraint of knowing that we're going to die and that loved ones are going to die too? Um, How do we reduce suffering in that in in many ways so this is like a the crux of the human condition in a lot of ways as well so this is also why i'm very interested in the spiritual and material and why i'm interested in healing and enhancing the body because i had all these experimental surgeries and one worked you know i just wanted to be like the other kids and have this full experience but i was also you know facing death from a young age too so it makes you live differently Mm -hmm. Um, and i feel very fortunate to have that experience i it was much harder for my parents than it was for me i'm sure yeah I mean, were, how aware were you at the time that it, that that was? Oh, I mean, I was pretty aware. It was 14 when I finally had the surgery that worked a skin expansion surgery at the Mayo Clinic. And um, and I was so thankful for it. But it was a really intense surgery. It was yeah. still considered experimental at the time. And, um, you know, my parents found the, doc- the doctor because I was mentioning my mom was a scientist. My dad was a pharmacist and they wrote, they, they read the scientific journals. Um, mm-hmm. They went to Columbia and they used to write to the library. And I mean, I still have their typewritten notes. Like nobody had email and like the internet then. So I was like, how did they find this doctor? Um, and the doctor had the idea when his wife was pregnant and her stomach stretched. And he thought, wow, like if skin can stretch like that, then we can stretch other skin. So he thought of it for burn victims, right. but they were able to use it for me. So they put these two implants in my head um and they pumped they they were in the sides of my head i had hair kind of around the sides of my head like a a ring of hair um and the top was empty didn't have skin or hair and so they they put these balloons in the side of my head that had ports behind my ears and that was a major plastic surgery it was like eight to ten hours plastic surgery of inserting these into my head and then over the course, I did it in a summer because um, I didn't want kids, you know, we didn't want kids to see me at school. Mm. And uh, every day my parents pumped these balloons up with saline and it stretched my head bigger and wow. bigger and bigger. I looked like that character on Star Wars with the big, with the big head. And, um, and then at the end of the surgery, you know, they took out the balloons and they pulled my hair and skin together and they sewed it. They sewed it up. And so then I didn't have any empty spots. So when you say empty, what was was it? Is it like it was like flesh. Or it what, was like, like um, when you scrape your leg or something. It would something. just like be raw, just, like a open. It was just raw. It was open, yeah. That's and so crazy. My skull also didn't close, so I still have that holy spot in the top of my still, head. Still, yeah, it's not all the way. No, uh, which you know I was really self conscious of when I was young, but now actually a lot of um, spiritual traditions tell me that I have a greater access point yeah. to the divine so, I, so yeah so i appreciate it so, cool. you know i've come to appreciate it but you know i still carry a lot with me from um this being labeled as like having a deformity yeah. um and and having a life-threatening deformity too and you know my parents 
not allowing me to do a lot of things because it could compromise me and yeah. understanding that rationally but not emotionally yeah of course um and and that contradiction of the human condition so i also i really relate to a lot of people that felt like they were born into the wrong body or that have limitations mm-hmm. of the body um that they feel like they can't you know fully be themselves because of their body yeah yeah i i didn't know any of that about you it's it's a it sort of says a lot about why you why you're doing what you're doing and i mean you've <clears throat> it's almost like you were born into the life that would lead you to the ex- exact thing you know like you had with scientist parents and this condition that brought awareness to this and now you're like you kind of have to it's almost like you're calling to go help it's other what people I, it's with, what i know yeah that's what i know does it feel right does it, you feel like where you feel like you are where you should be? I don't know. Um, I feel like I haven't had many other choices. Like mm. when I try to do other things, I'm led back to doing this work. So, um, so I really? feel like it's have what you, I'm Have you to tried do. to get away from it? And Well, I don't know if get away from it is necessarily the right thing. But, you know, after college, I thought I had to get like a certain kind of job. And, mm. um, and I worked in the auto industry for a while in design and... Um, you know, I think that wasn't necessarily so authentic. Right. Even if I could be good at what I was doing, um, there there was more I could do. Yeah. And I still think there's a lot more that I can do. Yeah. What's next? Well, it gets me it gets me really excited to continue to work with different kinds of partners because I think you know working interdisciplinary this is what brings up important questions. When we work together, we ask different questions of each other, mm-hmm. and um, I feel really comfortable working within companies. Um, and what's next is that I feel like I just need to keep making work. I just need to keep doing what I'm doing, and cool. I. I have had many opportunities to lean into being more of like a production artist in the traditional kind of gallery sense, like showing, selling, showing, selling. And I found myself experiencing a lot of resistance to that. So for now, I'm still feeling really good about doing these projects that are hard, but have a potential really big payoff for humanity. Like I said, even if we can't use the actual technologies verbatim, um, they paint the story of a different future that we could have and I think this is really valuable to um, to work alongside uh, the scientists and technologists that we can all play equal roles in considering what a healthy and empowered future can look like that sounds good yeah <laughs> <laughs> nice well um, is there anything else on your mind that you wanted to get off I don't know. Um, let's see. We talked about biofeedback a lot. We talked about some of the 3D printing. Um, the only other thing I think we could we could talk about is, um, you know, I make a lot of garments. Yeah. Yeah, I saw mm-hmm. a lot of your fashion stuff. Mm-hmm. It was beautiful. Yeah. And you did that with, did you do some cell stuff in there as well? Well, with my garments, I haven't used cells, but um, the most recent collection I made, internal collection, is based on anatomy. And it's taking what's on the inside of us and showing it on the outside. So this is both um, conceptual and there's a technical aspect to it, too. So the conceptual part is that, you know, we all have these organs and 
blood and we all have these internal things that would be really hard to look at for a lot of people like blood and guts are not pleasant but it's a connecting factor no matter what race you are what religion what economic class you are we all bleed and we all have this like very physical aspect of being human you know Mm. women give birth in the same way we we die (laughs) um and so it kind of connects that and it shows our vulnerabilities on the outside and it shows that like we can that can actually be a really beautiful thing that we can connect through but the garments based on anatomy also the technology that i use to make them I'm exploring how to maybe make some custom organs someday. I'm exploring different, uh, many different things here with the technology. That's one of the things. It's um, I'm exploring how to make like custom fit garments and patterns that wrap around the body in 3D instead of making things like totally flat. And this is really challenging in the digital environment and how we get that back and forth to our digital tools. And actually, some of the garments that I'm um, that I've made, some of these technologies are now being used for scoliosis to make scoliosis braces oh, and cool. 3d printed cat lightweight casts so that's really that's interesting too an wow. interesting aspect of it but again at the end of the day it's really important that these pieces that people can just come up to these pieces and you know that they have some kind of emotional reaction or emotional response to seeing them um, that the artwork on its own without anyone knowing any of the stories or what goes into it that they can feel some aspect of that by looking at it mm-hmm and you and you find that people do right I, I get a lot of feedback positive feedback that people do that's great yeah good job thanks <laughs> thanks uh, for having me yeah thanks so much for coming i i i feel like we talked mostly about that and there's probably a lot mm-hmm. more stuff we could explore but mm-hmm. um i'm glad we covered what we did and it's i like your i like what you're using your skills for and Thank it's you. a it's a very specific uh approach but it's like i said i think it's kind of you are the person that should be doing this it's you know it wasn't really made for somebody else (laughs) it's where you you are which is really cool i think i mean as long as you feel good doing it you know i do Um, i do it's a lot um it's a lot of pushing a rock uphill you mm -hmm. know when you have to forge your own path um that's better than following though isn't it that could be tough yeah, it's really rewarding, you know, and um, at the, you know, at the end of my life, I want to look back and feel like I really gave that a fair shot. Mm-hmm. I really tried. I and I can't say that every day. Well, nobody can but say it every day. When I, when I can say it, when I get to the point that I can say it like more days than not, I think I've gotten there. I'm not there yet. <laughs> yeah. Where are you? Where are you? Three days out of seven? No, no, not no, quite, no. But that's also my inner critic. Yeah. I'd say <laughs> yeah. you're doing better than you allow yourself to believe. Thank you. Thank and you. if you were to add it up right now, you'd still be, in, you'd be doing well. Thanks. And you have Thank a long you. way left to go. Thanks. That's it. I appreciate it. I appreciate the reminder. Yeah. Yeah, I need it too. I need oh. somebody else to stand by and remove the judgments that I place. <laughs> but I, guess, I think that's what friends are for, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> All right, friend. Well, thanks for coming. Thank it's you so much for having me. Great to see me. you again, Likewise. finally. <laughs> and uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you. All right. Bye. <laughs>
Thanks for listening, everybody. Did you hear that little uh, digital devil that got into the got in there? The little cyber attack. Somebody's trying to hack into my show and and change the message around. I think it's either Putin or El Chapo or El Nino. And yes, I know El Nino is a storm, but I still think it's his fault. Um, so, you know, uh, Amy Carl, you can find her work and her links to her talks and, uh, exhibits that she has going on. Uh, she has one in Pompidou Center in Paris. She's got something in China right now. Uh, she's all over the place. And, um, so you can find her at amycarl.com. Amy, A-M-Y, Carl. K-A-R-L-E dot com. And uh, on Instagram, you can find her at artist Amy Carl. And you can find me on Instagram at outspoken underscore podcast. And you can find this very show and the way to subscribe and share and download and all that other jazz um, at outspokenpodcast.com. You can also email me at email at outspokenpodcast.com and I'm so tired of saying words with dot com and things that have uh, things attached to them that are necessary but boring and stupid but not stupid they're actually smart and if if you call them stupid you're stupid so there just called myself stupid um I'm not going to do that anymore. It's really not nice. And uh, it's also not nice to scam people over the internet. I've been getting hit left and right by these scam attempts through email, through text, all day, all night. Um, I'm getting kind of tired of it, people. Cut it out. It's, uh, it's a pain in the ass. We don't like it. Um, so, uh, yeah, I love you guys. Thanks for listening. You're the best. And when I say the best, I mean better than all the rest. And since I'm saying that to all of you, you're all equal. But you are all equally the best. Um, All right. See you next week. Bye.